Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today's episode is the next in our In Their Own Words oral history series, in which we talk with scientists who have made great contributions to their fields. This week's guest is Dr. Alan Kovich, professor of ecology at the Odom School of Ecology at the University of Georgia in Athens. Let's go to the interview. Dr. Kovich, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity to, to talk with you and uh, find out more about how AIBS is developing the future. Well, thank you. And uh, so our first question is, when did you first know that you wanted to work in the life sciences? Well, I think uh, I've always, as a kid growing up, uh, enjoyed being outdoors, camping, canoeing. I didn't... Uh, think of it as a profession or a career at that point in high school, certainly. Uh, but I, I, I think I was just extremely lucky uh, to find the right mentors at the right time in my life to give me some guidance because I, I really was interested in just about everything. I was one of those students who, uh, I changed my major four times my first two years at the university, uh, Washington University. And, um, I know my family was beginning to worry that I would never know what I wanted to do, but I had great uh, teachers, and each time I took a, a course in something that uh, they really inspired me, I just wanted to do that. And so I ended up with a pretty diverse perspective um, on science in general. Uh, I think interested also in the connections between the social sciences and the natural sciences, especially economics. I ended up minoring in economics and majoring in botany. And uh, I was just extremely fortunate, I think, in having some work experience uh, in people's laboratories. So I was doing all kinds of things. Uh, mostly, I had a half tuition scholarship at Washington University. And during the other half, I was doing everything from washing dishes in somebody's lab to going to the uh, slaughterhouse to get calves liver on an ice bucket and take it into the cold room and spend the afternoon extracting mitochondria for a microbiologist and raising wonderful plants in the greenhouse for tobacco mosaic virus research and sort of listening in to what scientists were talking about. They would be having coffee and seeing that science is people and uh, biology is so diverse. I was still very unclear what I wanted to do, but the thing that, that made all the difference was field work and getting out and taking my initial kind of excitement about just being outdoors into something that actually had a, an intellectual uh, application. So that was, that was a great discovery. And I think I was able to go on field trips in the summer with Robert Woodson, who was a professor of botany at Washington U. He was studying the evolution of Asclepius tuberosa and had a transect across the entire country looking at the evolution of flower color. So for two summers, uh, along with some grad students, I, I was an undergrad, but I went with them collecting plants at um, high speed, 60 mile an hour along highways, pulling off every time we'd spot one in flower. And that was exciting. I got to see the country, but I also got to learn a lot about evolution. And then uh, I, I was very lucky in working at the Missouri Botanical Garden uh, with Hugh Cutler, who was an uh, ethnobotanist interested in the evolution of corn, looking at uh, fossil corn cobs, little tiny things that really were the earliest kind of domesticated corn that um, 
indigenous people were using to get popcorn and archaeologists were pulling these out of different strata and Cutler was, was looking at the evolution along with uh, Edgar Anderson, who was a geneticist looking at the evolution of, of maize. And that combination of research and um, intellectual curiosity, I think, was what did it. But in the summers, being able to get into the field really mattered. And, and so then uh, in college, uh, I was able to go to the tropics for the first time. Uh, with two of the faculty, the, the two actually who taught my first introductory ecology course, um, Norton Nickerson and Owen Sexton. And that trip to Darien, Panama, a month long going up the Chukunaki River and seeing the largest trees I ever could imagine. In fact, uh, just, just unbelievable diversity of plants and animals and people. The indigenous people living along the river were just incredibly fascinating and, and well adapted to making a living in, in ways that I had no idea about. So getting into anthropology and into cultural kind of things was just a kind of a natural process of uh, what liberal education was all about in the 60s. And I was just extremely lucky. I spent um, a month on Barra, Colorado Island, on uh, the island in Gatun Lake in the Panama Canal, uh, doing some studies there. And ever since, I've just been excited about the tropics. So uh, I think the idea of field work and experiencing things uh, firsthand is just so important. That's why this age of uh, the pandemic and having people uh, get outside, but in small groups uh, is still really important. And I guess uh, has been probably forever. Yeah, I would imagine looking at it in that perspective, you know, this has to be something that's a major priority for you in your teaching. Um, you know, in, in this semester and the coming semesters is, is finding ways to ensure that students are still able to have those types of experiences that were of great formative value to you. Uh, what's what's that experience been like of, of trying to maintain that? Well, I, I think it's been an age of discovery since March, but uh, indeed we have made some real progress, I think. Uh, and I, I, I think the students are really learning a lot in some new ways and, and certainly a, as somebody trying to being an effective mentor, I'm learning a lot about how to foster that in some really uh, exciting ways. But I, I always get back to telling them that um, once you know this is uh, over, you're going to need to have a lot of hands-on experience. And so don't wait. Um, turn off your computer, get outside, uh, do direct observations like people have done ever since uh, they started thinking about nature and sort of invent your own field work, your own direct observation, whether it's birds, butterflies, crayfish, whatever. Um, get out there uh, with close friends or whoever you can talk into doing some work safely and, uh, and experience nature uh, directly. And I, I strongly encourage people to look both day and night because some of the most exciting field work I've ever done is, is at night. And I'm convinced now that, you know, there two different kinds of ecosystems, one during the day and one during the night, because species are so adapted to these kinds of differences, whether you're a plant or an animal, when, you know, when you're pollinated or when you're feeding or when you're hiding, is so different uh, from day and night. And, and that's hard to capture online. So you, you really got to get out there. And I, I think you know, people are doing it. And, and of course they have for, for generations. And so it's just a matter of now reminding people uh, that yes, this is a different time 
but it's not that different from what we've been able to adapt for since the beginning. So I, I think it's working, uh, but I, I don't know. It, 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 it's, it is a challenge and it's not nearly as much fun as face-to-face -face and you know, small groups or a large auditorium. I've been teaching now for 50 years. I mean, I started my last year in graduate school at Yale teaching uh, the introductory ecology course to the undergrads and, and loved it and you know, never want to stop. Uh, but I think that from a standpoint of what you what you see is that students' eyes open to things that they just never thought about before, whether it was, you know, looking uh, down a microscope or looking at a scanning electron micrograph for the first time in a different way, in a way with context, in a way that shows uh, a, a deeper appreciation for biodiversity and aspects of how things actually work rather than just uh, aha that's beautiful it's it's interesting but how does it work how does it function uh what's its value in terms of society these are all issues i think that a, a good college uh, preparation helps you do and it certainly starts you know uh in grade school and certainly in high school uh and i think with parents i mean my mom as a single mom she was really interested in making sure that I got to Audubon Society meetings and uh, got outside and, and did things. And my brother and I were always encouraged to go to camp every summer. So it seemed to me that there, there is this early phase of parental guidance and then getting lucky. Uh, serendipity is just, you know, uh, I think so important. I, I think the only thing that I've managed to, to really learn is that Persistence and serendipity is, is a strong combination for learning about new things. And if, if you can develop curiosity about nature, uh, you're going to have fun, you're going to enjoy it, and you're going to come up with something new that people haven't seen before or interpreted in, in some new way. So uh, that, I, I, that's why I still enjoy teaching no matter how it is, online or face-to-face. -face, uh, it's still exciting. Absolutely. And, and speaking of serendipity perhaps a little bit, um, what would you say is the biggest surprise of your career so far? I think the biggest surprise is how much I learned in the last 30 years being part of the long-term ecological research program in Laquillo Mountains in Puerto Rico. I think traditionally uh, ecologists worked in small groups, you know, they had a lab, had some of their own uh, students, undergrads and graduate students, and maybe one or two other colleagues. But I think what the National Science Foundation has done in terms of developing the long-term ecological research program and creating uh, big science, team science, uh, really changing the culture of how we approach problems and thinking about timescales that are decadal long, not just you know in a period of a few years of a student's research program, either as an undergraduate or a graduate student, uh, or as a faculty member, but sort of multi-generational kinds of consideration. And seeing how those teams develop uh, has been really impressive and seeing the results that come out and the surprises that keep happening. I mean, we were, we started in 1987 uh, thinking about the effects of hurricanes on tropical rainforest. And we've had four of those since that time. And, but we also had two droughts and we weren't expecting droughts in a rainforest. And it turns out it's certainly extremely important. But gathering data for one kind of thing allows you to be ready for some surprise and to be able to interpret things that you just didn't expect to happen. 
So I think serendipity is is just amazing uh, for generating more curiosity and more innovation and the need for more techniques and technology. And LTR has been great about doing that. Uh, I think neon is, is the next thing for the next 30 years. Uh, I know that AIBS played a major role in that when I was president in terms of getting workshops uh, organized and getting uh, town meetings and getting the biological community to think about how to do continental scale research. Rita Colwell then as director of NSF was just an amazingly effective in, in helping getting that started and building on her earlier program in biocomplexity, which was sort of intellectually the precursor for, for all these kinds of uh, recognition of the need for long-term data. And now the big data is so available and there's so much of it coming and things are, are really happening. And you know, it's now it's operational in NEON. And I think graduate students, undergrads, faculty, are just uh, incredibly lucky to be able to have that kind of resource. So uh, to me, the, the surprise is, is how fast things are changing and uh, how exciting it is uh, today, which is why uh, you know, I, I'm just so interested in, in seeing how it works out because uh, I think we're going to be in for some amazing discoveries in the years ahead. Yeah, and you know, that kind of makes me curious. Um... The the major differences that you've just discussed about the way that you know science uh, used to be conducted and the way that it is now and it has been um, seem to be differences in scale. You know whether that be scales over time or the quantity of data that one has available or you know geographically that if you're looking at continental scale science versus um, you know small regional or site specific um, is that the the major difference between the way that you know science is being conducted now and the way that it was earlier in your career. Well, I think our tools are so much more sophisticated at the micro end and at the macro end that we're able to see things, you know, that we just not see before. But I think scale in biology has always been there. I mean, ever since uh, people started thinking about extinction and biodiversity, it's a global phenomenon. You know, what was happening in the Devonian or, or the uh, Permian, these are uh, planet-wide kinds of issues. Um, dramatic kinds of changes in the biodiversity. So one of the uh, advantages I guess I've had in, in my own career is having about a third of my work in geology and understanding and long time scales really matter in understanding evolution, but we're also learning that short time scales also matter in evolution and in some situations things can change very rapidly. So I, I think the pace of change is the main thing I think that that we've experienced is quite fundamentally different. There was always an interest in, in microbiology from the first microscope and Leon Hoke and all the kinds of amazing diversity that uh, he was able to uh, illustrate uh, shows, you know, I think an interest in that, but subcellular, you know, what was going on in, in terms of mitochondria or uh, aspects of what uh, we now think of as genomics, that was just not possible. So, the idea that the technology, I think on both ends, micro and macro, have just opened our eyes to so many things. And fortunately, we have a lot more people working and a lot more diversity in biology than we've ever had before, which I, I think is, is really significant in terms of leading to more innovation because people view the world through many different lenses now, more so than you know what was happening, say, when Darwin and Wallace were discovering evolution and biodiversity. But the same interest, I think, in direct observation and curiosity still drives it. So that, that's what I like about still teaching is that I can 
try to remind students that some fundamentals are the same, but wow, the changes have been remarkable and things are just changing so fast that this is a great time to be alive and, and to be curious about what's coming next. Absolutely. And um, how would you say that uh, professional societies have played a role in your career? Um, you know, were there any particularly big events or, or large happenings that, you know, kind of uh, had an effect there? Absolutely. And I think, you know, I uh, have benefited so much from professional societies. In fact, one of the courses I team teach now at Georgia is careers in ecology and, and emphasize students joining professional societies, student chapters, uh, to start thinking about career paths, whether they change dramatically over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. That's not the issue. It's just jumping in and getting started. And I remember, I guess, the, the first AIBS meetings, the first AAAS meetings, the first ecology meetings, the first meetings I went to for ASLO, uh, now the Association for Science and Limnology and Oceanography, Society for Freshwater Science, uh, International uh, Society for Ecology. All these are groups that over the years I've joined. Uh, and I think that I've benefited from enormously by being able to interact with people and get advice and to understand that uh, there are professional challenges, uh, often ethical issues in science, where you need professional societies to help you grapple with, you know, what, what is the right thing to do? Because an awful lot of things in biology and certainly in ecology and evolution are controversial. And uh, policymakers and the public often don't understand the process and groups like AIBS are essential in, in helping do that. So I think that the professional societies have always played a, an amazingly important role and more so now than ever. Uh, because I think what we're experiencing right now uh, with the pandemic is that a lot of people don't believe the science, don't understand the science. And it's really sad that uh, we haven't done a better job. And I think it's opening our eyes to the fact that professional societies need to step up and redouble their efforts. And, and I know that, you know, that it's difficult because these groups generally uh, re have a very small staff and rely a lot on volunteers and a lot on aspects of, you know, how do we do really big things with a small group of people? And so you start to learn about strategy and you learn about cooperation and that's why these large groups like AAAS and AIBS in particular are so important in terms of integrating all these other societies. And I, I remember when I was uh, president of AIBS, we were challenged with you know, trying to get the presidents of all the member societies together uh, for the president's summit and to establish some strategies for how do we move things ahead. And you know, at that point, I think there were some like 70 different groups I knew, you know, if any reader of bioscience, you know, like on, somewhere on page four, there's a list of all these organizations and member societies. And if you look at that, you begin to see, my goodness, biology is extremely diverse. And this isn't all of biology. This is integrated biology. This is, you know, there are a lot of other uh, societies in terms of experimental uh, biologists and so on and so forth uh, that are also working and working effectively, I think, in Washington, D.C., to try to talk with staffers in particular, uh, members of Congress, uh, and, and trying to educate them. But there's turnover. There's turnover in terms of the staff. There's turnover in terms of congressional uh, committees. And there's turnovers in, in terms of the professional societies. 
so that it's an ongoing, never-ending kind of challenge to make it clear that professional societies can represent a very large number of people, even though there's still a lot of disagreements about some fundamentals, there's an enormous agreement about some major points that need to be communicated effectively. So I don't know. I mean, ever since I was a graduate student, I, I think I've enjoyed reading bioscience. And I think it's, AIBS does a fantastic job with that. I always look forward to it. And I, I think even this uh, idea then of, of having an uh, oral history uh, and having people talk about their careers is, is, is really important because AIBS from the very beginning, I think w one of the things that uh, was a highlight was non-traditional careers. And NSF was, was very anxious to understand how to diversify uh, what professional biologists do. And I think uh, it was always interesting to me that um, AIBS was right at the center of that, of showing how people could change. They might have a PhD in cell biology, but suddenly they decide, you know, they want to be editor of bioscience or they, they want to do something completely different. And that's still going on with our graduate students and our undergraduates. They're extremely diverse, more so now than ever before, because there are more opportunities than ever before. But somebody's got to keep, uh, I think, reminding people that this is the right thing to do that you don't have to make up your mind when you know, you're eight years old that you're going to do one thing and just keep doing it. You can be growing on the job, changing jobs. You have freedom to be uh, really capable of being innovative and being capable of seeing things quite differently and often being right, but also not being too concerned when you're wrong because you know that you can uh, come back and you've got some support from others who've been there and done the same kind of thing. So I don't know. I think professional societies to me have just been just a major part of my life. And uh, I think that at the international level, that's become really significant as well. Uh, I think the Ecological Society of America started out uh, over 100 years now in, in terms of uh, many of the members were from all over the world because we were, ESA was just a second uh, ecological society right after the British by one year. And uh, the idea that we're facing global problems isn't new. We've been facing global problems for as long as people can remember. It's just now we can face them with more collaboration, more cooperation, and more technology. And now we just have to have the political will to make things happen. And in order to do that, we need to communicate why science is, is actually working uh, for everybody, not just uh, for a few people, uh, as some, I think, uh, people are suspicious that, oh, it's just another industry all we're doing is worrying about uh, grant support, and uh, it's not that. It's curiosity. It's really trying to find out how things work and how they can work better and how we can value them in time to be useful before we lose a lot of this biodiversity that's actually contributing so much to ecosystem services and to, so much to our lives. And we have to get people to stop and think long term, not just about what's happening next week or next year, but over decades. And I, I think that's why the professional societies need to sustain themselves, need to be in business for a long time. And certainly AIBS has, has done that. Uh, I don't think people appreciate all that is done or, or how uh, hard it is to keep things going. But uh, certainly so far it's working and it just needs to keep working and keep working better and better and better. 
Yeah, it sounds like there's a potential for achieving a kind of unity of vision or perspective that you wouldn't get in the absence of those sort of overarching organizations. Um, but since, since you mentioned AIBS, um, do you have any particular favorite stories uh, or you know, uh, striking memories from your time uh, working with AIBS as president? Well, the thing I think that uh, I still am amazed about was that um, we had this incredible celebration in terms of the new millennium back in 2000, uh, where we invited outstanding biologists to talk about not only what they'd done, but how they see the future. And that was just an incredible experience for me personally, and I think for anybody who attended that two-day session. But seeing people that you know you had uh, known about, read about, uh, but maybe not had met recently, like Ernst Meyer, giving a talk at 95 about his perspectives on, on evolution and, and how he got started uh, and how he got interested in biology. And, and what AIBS did was to interview each of the speakers and, and some of those uh, video recordings are still on YouTube, surprisingly enough. Uh, so, you know, people uh, can go back and, and see what, what people were thinking in 2000 about what was gonna happen in the next millennium. Well, 20 years later, some of those ideas are, are still really hot topics. And I think uh, people like E.O. Wilson, Dan Jansen, Gillian Prince, Gordon Orians, uh, Gene Likens, um, uh, Gillian Prince, uh, a number of, of folks, I think uh, Marvely Wake, uh, Lynn Margulis, these were people who viewed biology very differently. And I, I, I still remember uh, how inspired that was and how well it worked because uh, we were hosted by the Natural History Museum at the Smithsonian and I think we were, we were trying to uh, make this happen with a very small budget but people were very enthusiastic and I think um, it was one of those things that was extremely uh, effective at, at the time and I think more of those kinds of historic events looking forward is what's needed because this is what students today are interested in. They want to know how they can contribute. And I keep reminding them that, you know, science is people and understanding something about the history of science is, is really critical for understanding what you can do next. But it's unlimited in terms of these kind of things. And having some high profile kinds of opportunities to highlight these things really do help. I know when I, when I first moved to Georgia in 2003, I was teaching what we, we call a senior seminar, and uh, Gene Odom had just recently passed away, and I got online and looked for something uh, on Gene Odom that I could use in my seminar, and here was this video interview with Gene from 2000, uh, from that new millennium uh, session, and, and he was just perfect. He was just saying exactly what Gene Odom always said about ecosystems, and the students loved it. The resolution uh, is not as great as it is today in terms of videos, but it still, I think, captured the personality. It captured uh, the, the independence, the drive, the, the thinking about uh, how things can be done differently. And Gene always told the story that, um, you know, he wanted to write a book on fundamentals of ecology and his department head in the zoology department said, well, there are no fundamentals. I don't know how you're going to write that textbook. Well, he managed to write it. And then, you know, five editions later, uh, it was still very important. 
But I think those kinds of personal stories and, and the favorite one that I got out of that video and, and since used many, many times in my own teaching is that when Gene was growing up, he wanted to be a plumber. And when his family uh, would go to dinner on Sundays at different people's homes, he would get under the house and start looking for where the pipes come and how things were connected. And people would wonder, where, where's Gene? Oh, he's, he's exploring. Well, he was interested in flows. He was interested in connectivity. He was interested, he called it plumbing, and then he later found out it's ecology and it's ecosystems. Uh, and he and his brother, H.T. Odom, and his, his father, who was a social scientist, that family had some amazing discussions, uh, not only about plumbing, but about social sciences impacting on the environment and all the rest of it. And that came over in that interview in a way that I thought was extremely important for students to see. So I, I, I think the, the surprise is that professional societies do great things. Sometimes they're not fully appreciated because people are so busy. And I don't know what the answer to that is because, you know, maybe now people are spending more time at home and they have more time to explore for these kinds of things than they used to. I hope that continues. But uh, certainly the role of, of communicating past in order to understand what's possible in the future is, is extremely important, more so than ever before, in my view. Obviously, it was probably always important, but certainly right now, uh, it seems really important for science to be understood. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, and collecting many of those stories and perspectives has been, you know, uh, a very rewarding experience uh, for me as well. Uh, speaking of, you know, perhaps one of those stories, um, what what would you say is your best day on the job? It could have been perhaps one of the ones you just mentioned, or or anything else. Uh, I, the idea near the end of every semester when uh, students have really learned a lot and are beginning to appreciate how things come together because I think week by week um, sometimes they, they're, they're struggling to, to put the pieces together and biology and ecology requires integration and it's, it's not easy so it takes a real effort uh, but when you see students uh, smiling and feeling confident, and they do well on the final exam, I think, ah, okay, I've done a good job. In terms of research, probably the best day of my life was um, the first night I discovered I needed to uh, put on a face mask and go out uh, with an underwater light and see what was happening in the lake in Yucatan, Mexico that I was studying. It was an absolute shock to see uh, how many eyes were looking back at me that I hadn't seen during the day. That's why earlier I said, this notion of uh, what happens at night versus what happens in the day is just amazing. I will never forget that as long as I live. And I'm still doing that, doing nighttime video recording now in Brazil, uh, because I think that what you see in terms of predator-prey interactions and foraging behavior and what happens uh, in the dark, whether it's in a river or a lake or on land, uh, is really fundamentally different at night. And uh, I, my data are so much better after I put my first face mask on and my first underwater light that I just can't keep uh, from telling people, make sure you do that. Uh, yes, sampling has its problems no matter how you do it, but putting a net through the water is not the same as actually getting in the water and looking firsthand. And now with the uh, GoGo cameras and the, the way the cameras have developed for underwater work today is just astounding. Uh, and the fact that we can do uh, red light, low light, 
and get some pretty good nighttime imagery is just amazing. But what you can see with your own eyes is still the best thing in the world. So I think those, those are the two best days of my life is um, the end of the semester and the beginning of my first nighttime studies. <laughs> No, that's interesting. And, and you know, it, it reminds me of something, um, you know, in my own life, I'm a, an avid hiker and um, I enjoy night hiking quite a bit. And it always amazes me that people, you know, just kind of hole up in their tents when the sun goes down. And, and I think they kind of miss out on some of the, the best part of the day. Um, of course, you have to watch your step a little bit. Yeah. And the stars are amazing. You know, when you get outside the city with all the light pollution and you see what the sky actually looks like, it's astounding. And, uh, and moonlight, and, you know, and when you see underwater on a moonlit night versus a night that's cloudy or there's no moon, it's a different ecosystem. And, and, and it's been that way ever since time. You know? So there are a lot of physiological things that are determined by solar day lengths and day night kind of things, but there's also species that evolve to lunar cycles. So all that just intrigues me uh, no end that I just, I, I find it fascinating. Absolutely. Um what would you say was your most challenging day on the job? Ah, I think uh, academic administration. <laughs> I served eight and a half years, uh, first as department head, uh, and then as director of the Institute of Ecology when I first moved to Georgia. And um, I don't know, people talk about herding cats. I've never tried to herd cats. But uh, trying to get faculty in a meeting to agree on something is, is really complicated because of this tradition, I think, of, of such independence that we've developed. Um, and the fact that, you know, people first opinions, but uh, if you're talking about, you know, changing the curriculum or modifying things in some kind of way that, that you think is better, getting people to agree on it is, is really tough. And so I, I, uh, I think I've learned on the job, but I think my first, uh, I think, days and weeks being an academic administrator were uh, definitely challenging. Do you find that that aspect of the job rewarding or, uh, you know, just a, a necessary difficulty or evil? No, it's absolutely rewarding. I wouldn't have done it for eight and a half years. I mean, the other half is because sure. the person that was going to replace me didn't show up because uh, that uh, changed his mind. But I, I think that I, trying to uh, really build things that matter requires teamwork and that requires leadership and i i began to appreciate leadership you know all along ever since uh, being a boy scout actually and i but i think all through my career it's, it's, it was clear that when good things happen it's because some people rise to the occasion for really spending some time and part of their energy and creativity to make things uh, work for others so I, I think academic administration is a good thing. I never wanted to be a dean or a provost or any of those jobs. Are, <laughs> I respect anybody who will do that, but boy, that's another scale that I was never brave enough to tackle. But I think at the unit level, the departmental level, uh, it's really great to be able to work with your colleagues and, and get agreement and make things happen and uh, you see some progress. Uh, but I, and I, I think you get, you get better at it and then you say, okay, uh, I've learned those lessons and now it's time for somebody else to jump in. So I think another best day of my life was when I stopped doing it because I was liberated to get back to full-time research and teaching. And so everything's a trade-off, but I think you have to make those trade-offs as you go and, and learn as you go and appreciate then how difficult some jobs are. So, you know, I, I no longer complain when somebody has uh, a different opinion from mine. I think, okay, well, I understand how that can be. 
And uh, same with organizing programs. I mean, I was program chair for a number of things at AIBS and Ecological Society and Society for Freshwater Science, Intercol. And now when I go to a meeting, I just enjoy the meeting so much more because I know how hard it is to make it work. And I know how lucky I am to have benefited from going to the meeting without having to actually be the program chair or uh, participate in, in all the lead work that comes up to it. So I think you begin to appreciate uh, how complicated some jobs are by actually doing them for a short period of time. And, I, and I've always uh, had a limit myself that 10 years on any particular job was just about right. And then it was time to move on to, to the next phase or next something to give somebody else a chance. It was your primary motivation in that to give someone else a chance or was it to keep things fresh and, you know, keep exposing yourself to, you know, kind of new stimuli? Well, that's, I think, two ways of saying the same thing. I, I, I think that um, you you do get exhausted after a while in, in terms of uh, dealing with some of the paperwork, which is really the downside of administration. And, and as far as I can tell, it hasn't gotten any better. Uh, but I think having some enthusiasm of people coming on to any job for the first time, asking questions that, well, why did we do it that way? Why don't we do it this way? And actually, that, that was sort of how I got into it in the first place, because I can remember I was assistant chairman in zoology when I was at the University of Oklahoma. And as a faculty member, we had three annual reports to do. And I couldn't figure out why do we have three to do when we only have one year. And it turned out, well, one was for the dean of arts and sciences, one was for the department head, and one was for something that nobody else understood why we still had it, because nobody ever looked at it. And I thought, good Lord, we're wasting our time doing some of these kind of things. And that, that was opened my eyes to the fact that administration can get bogged down. And so you really need somebody to come in and shake things up and say, well, you know, is this the best thing to do? And uh, what are the trade-offs? Uh, how much time is this taking relative to how we could be investing our time in something more creative? So I, I think that definitely you need new eyes, you need new ideas. And uh, I think that, you know, as, as many people who can do that, I would say, uh, you know, probably three to five years is plenty. That makes sense. And um, changing gears a little bit, if you could pick an event or aspect of your career that you would like to be long remembered into the future, you know, what would that aspect be? Well, that's a hard one. I don't know. Um, I think that the, the thing that I'm probably now most excited about, curious about, um, hoping that it will work is this National Ecological Observatory Network uh, that, as I mentioned before, AIBS had a, a major role in organizing workshops and communicating to the uh, ecological community about how to do uh, this kind of science. But it is uh, so amazingly challenging and complex. I, th I think Patel now recently is, is doing a, a good job but I've been on several committees evaluating progress and, and seeing about just how complicated big science is. And, and doing continental scale science is, is definitely a challenge and something that you know, hadn't been done before. So the idea of, of how to uh, watch that develop is something that I, I really want to spend some time on uh, as I get to my retirement phase of life and seeing uh, how this next generation uses that information uh, and how policymakers use it. Because now it was designed to think about climate change. And it, I think it was well designed, but I think it, it has to continue to be evaluated in terms of 
as we learn more about what climate change is doing and how to measure it, um, are we keeping up? I think the models uh, are getting better and better, and, and the, the results are showing that things are happening faster than we might have uh, first anticipated. Uh, but I, I can remember uh, early on reading some amazing books about climate change before it was a topic. And, and I guess uh, Rachel Carson was the first one back in 1951 talking about what was happening uh, in the northern areas about uh, what wildlife were doing, what birds were doing. Uh, and in the sea around us, she was anticipating aspects of climate change. Uh, and that then coupled with aspects of pollution with Silent Spring, she was just amazingly insightful uh, as a direct observer and, and a careful reader of what was happening. And if you could multiply that by thousands and millions of people thinking ahead and thinking about, you know, what, what can we do now to, to make the world better? Uh, it would be really, really timely. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think that um, the other thing that, that I, I really wish I were better at is science writing. Um, I'm thinking about taking some courses in retirement to, to learn how to write better, to communicate more widely. Uh, that's why I think, you know, what bioscience does is so important and, and will continue to be forever. But I think that uh, we really need to be more effective in communicating what we know is important and what we don't know yet, but we need to know. Because so many people think that research is done and, and they don't understand that it's ongoing. And every time you answer one question, you've suggested three or four more that need to be answered. But there's certain books, certain things I think that catch people's eye, you know, whether it's things like Darwin and the origin of species or for me growing up, uh, it was, uh, Marston Bates in the forest and the sea, and the idea of making an analogy between coral reefs and rainforest and biodiversity really got me excited at a time uh, you know, when I was uh, in college. And I, I just, reading a lot of the, what was then viewed as popular books, uh, was something that I did routinely because I, one of my part-time jobs in college was on the weekend and Sundays I managed um, the uh, garden gate shop at the Missouri Botanical Garden which had a small bookstore, uh, and indeed, uh, I could uh, read some of those books and then refer people to them and say, have you seen this? And, this is a really great book, but mostly I was just interested in reading as many as I could, and I think I'm still that way in terms of, I just find uh, books that are written for non-specialists as being really critical, and uh, I think we need more people integrating, we need more people doing it, and I'm so proud of some of our graduate students, some of our PhDs who are looking at that as a, as a profession. And again, I say that, you know, that's what AIBS has been fostering ever since I can remember, is uh, making career goals that fit you and your personality and your goals and your interest in, in really making a change. Uh, so that I, I think even though I haven't done much of that, uh, maybe none of that so far, right? most of my papers have been oriented towards peer-reviewed journals, but I would, I would certainly like to write more things for a wider audience, and uh, I hope I can do that. Well, we'd hope so, too, and we would look forward to those. Um, what are you working on right now? Well, two things I, I think are uh, most immediate. The uh, continuing work in Puerto Rico, looking at uh, how things are continuing to change in terms of cumulative effects of this combination of hurricanes and droughts that I referred to earlier. Uh, climate change is certainly hitting uh, the rainforest. But uh, I got a Fulbright uh, a few years ago after attending a conference in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil uh, from the Brazilian Limnological Society. 
and got invited to uh, collaborate with some colleagues uh, in the Pantanal. And uh, seeing the Pantanal for the first time and, and flying over it and then getting into the field is just so amazing. It's the world's largest wetland. For good reason, it's the most diverse habitat I've ever seen. And so it's, it's, it has forest all around it. The, uh, the watershed that drains into it is amazing. But when I first started reading about it years ago, I, I just could not understand how it could function as an ecosystem. And now I have a better idea how it functions, but I'm more worried about, you know, will it be sustainable? Because, you know, it's, it's a six months dry season when uh, a lot of things dry out and cattle are brought in and there's a lot of uh, production. And then uh, the rains start and from north to south, there's a wave of water that, that is uh, inundating this entire area. But some of the lakes are perched and aren't flooded. Uh, some of the wetlands are flooded. The topography is so much more complex than I ever understood before. And as a consequence, with all that habitat diversity, you just get an amazing amount of biodiversity in, in, of all sorts, from everything from jaguars and big game anteaters and uh, tapirs and so on, uh, it, to all kinds of um, macroinvertebrates and, and microbes. So the Pantanal uh, is something I wish I had discovered you know, years ago uh, to get a better handle on it, but I'm, I'm trying to keep up with that now. And uh, one, one sad thing is that I wasn't able this last summer to go back because of uh, the flights were all canceled to Brazil. But I'm counting on uh, 2021 getting back into the field and, and looking at um, some of these food webs, which is fascinating. Yeah, and I should ask, you know, what is the, you know, the field work like there? I mean, you know, is, are you remote and distant sleeping in a tent, um, you know, on, on some little small swath of land in a, in a large wetland? Or is it, um, you know, short trips out from a, a city center? Well, I was actually really impressed with what the, um, the universities have done over the years. I mean, everybody understands about the Amazon, I think, and it, it, it's very diverse. And, you know, if you're studying the river as an ecosystem, you can operate off of a large ship. Uh, and, you know, Manaus and all the rest of it, it there's very, the scientific infrastructure is, is amazing and is internationally funded. Uh, I think people from all over the world study there and, and fund it. But the Pantanal is less uh, well known, I think, for, for research relative to the Amazon. But the universities have field stations. Um, the federal universities is just where a lot of the research is done. We don't we don't have federal universities that I'm aware of in the U.S. We have you know state universities or private universities. Uh, they have federal universities and state universities and private universities. But a lot of the money that goes into research is funded, uh, and at least in the past, though they've had some serious cuts uh, recently, uh, into some very significant infrastructure, and they've made enormous progress. I first went to Brazil uh, from the early UN discussion about the biodiversity treaty and getting ready for that was a, a major effort, I think a uh, global effort. And seeing how things developed after that have been amazing. Even though the US never signed that treaty, others have and it had a huge impact on the Brazilian uh, science structure. So that the facilities, the field stations, and the number of students who are working is just incredibly exciting. In fact, when I went to that first uh, limnology meeting in, in Rio, I, I walked into this auditorium and I, I could not believe how many people were there and how many were you know under 25 or 30 years of age. Uh, so that 
the papers that were given and all of the work that was going on was just absolutely uh, impressive and amazing. And the thing that uh, I guess concerned me was that they they read our papers, but we don't read all of theirs. So many of us don't read Portuguese. There's getting better and better in, in uh, publishing in English. Uh, but I, I think throughout um, the world, Spanish and Portuguese and uh, is really becoming much more significant in terms of publication. When I was a student, we were required uh, to read German and French because, or Russian. Uh, now I think Spanish and Portuguese, at least for tropical work, uh, is, is a real necessity. But I, I think that they, the field work is, is, you can do it at any scale. You can certainly go out, um, you know, with one or two people and camp out and spend some, uh, some nighttime observation uh, all by yourself, or uh, you can go with groups. And the, the first time I went out, we had um, two vans full of people and uh, with the grad students and faculty and they teach field courses in the Pantanal, which is just totally amazing. So they have an infrastructure that's set up to do that. But the other thing is that much of the Pantanal is privately owned. And so to get into some places, you need permission. And this is, this is where it gets complicated. You really need uh, the social network of the researchers who know the private landowners to be able to get permission to sample and study on their land. And that can complicate things in terms of access and, and how long you can stay, for example, you know, last summer they were doing nighttime studies, but they wanted us off of their private land by 8.30 at night because they were concerned about uh, aspects of uh, accidents happening. There, there are jaguars and caimans and all kinds of things out there. Uh, and so they didn't want to take chances, but they, they understood that we needed nighttime data. But we couldn't stay all night. In other places you could stay all night, but then uh, the roads weren't very good, and so you could get stuck. So I think like most field work, it's a challenge, but it's, it, it's actually pretty simple in some places. Some areas are really open to ecotourism and have excellent facilities. Uh, I think, so it, it, it really it runs an enormous uh, range of possibilities, all of them great. That sounds exciting. And um, this, you know, may be informed by uh, something you just said about the difference in the languages used. But if you were entering graduate school today, is there anything that you would study differently or do differently um, from when you did it the first time around? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I did take uh, French and German because the, those are required as uh, a PhD at the time when I was a grad student. And so I started in high school with French. Uh, I would I would definitely do uh, Spanish and Portuguese if I were starting today. I've, I've learned some Spanish uh, in the field, but you know I, I can't speak very fluently in Spanish. I, I I can think of the present and the future, but my past tense verbs are terrible. So I, I really that's that's another thing I need to do in retirement is improve my my language abilities just so I feel better about it. Uh, so many scientists, of course, today do speak English, and we're so lucky about that, especially the younger ones. Uh, and they're anxious to practice their English. So uh, it works out. Communication is still there. But you feel like uh, you're missing some of the jokes, certainly. <laughs> you're missing some of the, the cultural richness if you don't really speak the language. Um, obviously, there's more computer sciences and more uh, skills along those lines, which I wish I uh, would have taken it up as well all along the way. But again, fortunately, I've had great graduate students and colleagues to help. And in, indeed, in these days, it's a team effort. So uh, I, th I think it's, it's been working. But um, yeah, I mean, I, looking back on it, I, there's certainly some things I, I, I would do differently if I were starting today. And uh, any advice for young scientists starting out in the field today? 
Well, I think this is, you know, what we, we're formalizing is now, say, in these, these courses that, that we teach on our campus to for career guidance. And I think we have career centers in, in ways that are, are working uh, for biologists in, in much more diverse ways than when I was a student. It used to be, you know, uh, I guess about 95% of all freshmen said they wanted to be physicians. And so pre-med was dominating, and, uh, and I think it still does in many areas, but there's much more diversity now in terms of getting good advice. Uh, and that, that certainly helps, but I think we've formalized it in coursework so that people get it when they need it, which is early on, uh, so that we can, we can start to advise freshmen now uh, rather than waiting two years until they declare a major, as used to be the case. And that helps a lot. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't change majors because that's what I keep telling them. I change four times. You can change as many times as you want as long as you eventually graduate on time and pull things together in some new ways that work for you. And, and unfortunately, universities are pretty flexible these days, uh, and that, that helps a lot. But I, I think that uh, from the standpoint of advice is to be um, persistent. Uh, don't give up. If uh, the first thing doesn't work, stay at it. I mean, Lord knows that that's my only um, skill set is persistence. Uh, I think that you're, you're always going to find some opportunities and you grab them. Now, that was one thing that uh, G. Hutchinson emphasized in terms of his students was that uh, when you see something that's unique and really interesting, grab it, uh, make the most of it, um, don't let go. Uh, he would tell a story of some things that he saw that he didn't follow up on that he regretted. Of course, he saw so many things that he did follow up on that it was hard for us to imagine that that was really a problem for him. But he did emphasize that some things you really have to jump on immediately. Some things can wait. And making those distinctions between what you do in a timely manner and how you use your time effectively is something that uh, is really hard to learn when you're starting out. And I, I think that uh, a lot of times people are more concerned about what I would call efficiency rather than creativity. And sometimes creativity is pretty messy, but it, it is also a question of how timely is it? Uh, are you there at the right time in the right place to see something that nobody else has seen or to appreciate it in a context that nobody else has been able to do because your background was different? And so being overly concerned about what we call the program of study and making sure that you have the prerequisites and all the kind of things that academics generally focus on is one set of concerns, but usually those work out uh, one way or the other, and you can always patch things together if you need to. But the fact is that timeliness and persistence and curiosity uh, really work. I think you've seen that in some of the other kind of discussions that AIBS has had. I saw online there was a, a number of career guidance kinds of things, and uh, I remember Joe Travis having some wonderful things to say. Uh, others on that series, uh, Pamela Solstice at the uh, University Museum in Florida. Others, I mean, I, I would seek out as many different kinds of suggestions as possible, and today that's easier to do than ever. Uh, I. I've, Really, when I look back on it, I was amazing how uninformed I was about so many things um, when I was just starting out in college. And uh, yet it worked. And that's what I keep reminding students of uh, in these classes that I teach today is that uh, you're going to be just surprised when you look back 10 years later about how many things happened that you didn't expect to happen.
get over uh, worrying about being, you know, too much in charge. Uh, take advantage of opportunities as they come along. I think that was Ernst Meyer's big uh, advice when we interviewed him back in 2000 at, at age 95. And he, he gave some examples in his own career about how he wanted to be uh, a physician because his father and his grandfather was, was a medical doctor. And so it was assumed that he would be until he went on a voyage to New Guinea and discovered aspects of biodiversity of, of ornithology and then other kinds of things that he suddenly realized uh, he wanted to be a biologist, not a, a medical doctor. And I, I think that, you know, we need good doctors. I certainly uh, favor of that, but I think that we also need people to follow their own pathways. And, and fortunately today, um, it's easier to do in some ways, but more complicated because there are more pathways. And, and so I, I, I really understand how frustrating it can be for students. And I just say, jump in, do what you can, learn as you go, and be persistent. I think that's uh, excellent advice and uh, a great parting shot as well. Uh, Dr. Kovic, thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you for doing all this. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.